We're going to be in Nehemiah again this morning, so I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 7 this morning. Did you hear that, Brother Jeff? Nehemiah chapter 7. And I'm sure that some of you have been reading ahead in your, as we've been going through Nehemiah. If you're visiting with us, uh, I'll, just, I'll just explain that we're in a series. Every other week we look at the book of Nehemiah, and we started at the beginning, and we're going to go all the way to the end. And so we're systematically going through it. And so some of you may be, you know, proactive in reading ahead. And if you've read, how many of you have read Nehemiah chapter 7? Anybody? Because Nehemiah chapter 7 is going to be interesting. Let's start reading in verse number 1. Then it was, when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. These are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, and I'll just stop right there. Because as you can see, all the way down now to uh, where we go, all the way down to verse number 73, 72, somewhere around in there, we have a long list of names, which we'll talk about here this morning. But let's pray first. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity now to open your word. And we're thankful for the fact that every word of the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, holy, infallible, perfect word of God. And we accept it as such today. And so we come to you today humbly asking that you would teach us. I pray, Father, that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might be clear today and accurate and practical in teaching, that I might not say anything I ought not to, and that I would be bold to say the things that I should. And I just pray today, Father, speak to me first, and then through me to these your people. Just bless us. We try to understand what you have for us today. Teach us. And Lord, where necessary, change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak to you just for a few minutes this morning on the topic, three things to remember while I'm gone. Three things to remember while I'm gone. As you'll recall, Nehemiah's primary task so far in, uh, in Jerusalem has been the reconstruction of the wall. But now it's basically complete. We saw at the conclusion of chapter 6 that the wall is done. Glory. Hallelujah. The wall is completed. And now I believe what's happening here in chapter 7 is that Nehemiah is preparing to leave Jerusalem and to return back to Babylon because he had promised King Artaxerxes that he would do that. Do you remember that back in chapter 1? Let's do a little review here. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, or actually chapter 2, and look at verse number 6. Remember he has asked the king, he has told the king that he wants to go to Jerusalem and take care of the, the fact that the walls are broken down. You can read a lot of all that in previous verses. But in verse number 6, Then the king said to me, The queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? Clearly the king was not expecting him to go forever. He was expecting him to come back. So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. So Nehemiah had set 
a time that he was going to return. And I think, I can't be dogmatic about it, but I think he's beginning to think about that here. Uh, he doesn't leave immediately because chapters 8 through 12, really, he still seems to be around. But we get over to Nehemiah chapter 13, if you want to flip to the end of the story, and look there at verse number 6. Obviously, he did leave, because verse 6 says, But during all this time I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king. So I'm not totally clear on the chronology and exactly when he left and all, but I believe here in chapter 7 now, he's beginning to think about that and he's beginning to plan. And I think uh, what he's doing here is setting some things in place uh, for when he's going to be gone. And there are three interesting things that he did prior to his departure that we just read about in the first few verses of chapter 7. The first thing he did was he appointed leaders to oversee Jerusalem in his absence. He appointed his brother Hanani and a fellow by the name of Hananiah. Hananiah and Hananiah, uh, who had been serving as the governor of the castle. The second thing he did is he gave those new leaders instructions, uh, what he expected of them, I think, in his absence. And the third thing he did, which seems somewhat unrelated, was he pulled together a list, a register, a genealogy of the nobles and rulers of the people, according to verse number five. I'm not sure if those things are all related, but we're going to treat them as if they are today. Because I, I think that there are three things that basically Nehemiah was saying, I want you to remember while I'm gone. And so as in previous lessons, I'm going to use three words today to describe those three different thoughts and that kind of guide us through our, our discussion here this morning. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but we're going to look at it with those three words in mind. The first word is leadership. The second word is guardianship. And the third word is membership. Let's see if we can see those three things in there. First of all, leadership. I see that in verses 1 and 2. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. We've noticed many, many wonderful lessons in Nehemiah on the subject of leadership. Whole books have been written on leadership based on Nehemiah. Certainly, uh, anybody in a position of leadership, whether it be in the business world or in the church or in the home, any place where leadership comes into play, ought to be studying Nehemiah for the leadership principles you can gain just from this tremendous leader. But here, we see now, this great leader of men is getting ready to pick leaders. And so what does this leader look for in other leaders? It's a very interesting thing. And I, I think I see three different things that he looked for and that he used in selecting these two guys, Han and I, and Hananiah. I think he looked for concern. I think he looked for faithfulness. And I think he looked for something that he describes as fearing God more. I like that one. That was interesting. Think about those three characteristics. The first thing he looked for here in these new leaders was concern. You might ask yourself where I'm getting that. Well, I'm getting that from Hanani. Hanani, his brother. Hanani was his brother, he says, or at least a, a near kinsman. The word that is translated brother there could also be translated just kinsman. Uh, he was some relation. And some people, therefore, suggest that, that Nehemiah was uh, exhibiting a little nepotism here when he put Hanani in place uh, as his replacement or as his leader. I guess that's possible. I mean, that kind of thing happens, doesn't it? I mean, people put their, their friends and their relatives in positions of power, but nothing in the text suggests that. And nothing that we know about uh, Nehemiah would even allow that. He was such a man of character, it does not seem likely. I think that if he picked Hanani to be a successor, if he picked Hanani to, 
to, to have a position of leadership in Jerusalem. There must have been a reason. And it must have been that he believed him to be qualified for the job and really even to be the best person for the, for the job. We don't know much about Hanani, so we have to kind of guess. We have to kind of deduce as to, as to what it could have been. But there, were a couple, there are a couple of things that might be clues, and one of them is that he was kin. He was kin. And as a, a relative, there is a reasonable expectation, is there not, that he would therefore be loyal. And so perhaps he was looking for loyalty there. Perhaps he was looking for someone that would not, the minute Nehemiah headed down the road to Babylon, undo everything that had been done there. And that is possible. But I think there's an even stronger reason why he might have picked this man. Uh, and I think that there is a clue. And it's all the way back in Nehemiah chapter 1. Go all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 1. The very first part of the book. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan the citadel that who? Who came? Who? Hanani. One of my brethren came with men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And we could go on. But what we would see is that Hanani was the person who first shared the news of Jerusalem's condition with Nehemiah. Hanani was the first person who exhibited this concern over the state of God's people and God's city and God's work and God's name. And as a matter of fact, Nehemiah would not have even had that concern and that care which prompted him to go through all that he went through to go back to Jerusalem and, and oversee this great project to rebuild this wall. None of that would have happened if Hanani had not first come and elicited that concern in Nehemiah. And so I think that this concern, this care about the people of God that, that we see in Nehemiah all throughout, I think it started way back there. I think he also saw it in Hanani. And therefore he thought he's got the same heart. And therefore we'll push him there. Is there any greater criteria in leaders than caring, than concern? Think about all the places we could apply that thought. Think about all the places where leadership is, is a part of the equation. Think about political leadership. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be wonderful <laughs> if political leadership actually cared? Think about church leadership. What kind of, what kind of pastors or church leaders would, 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 would people be if they didn't care? Business leadership, even leadership in our homes. In every case, this quality caring concern is important. You've heard the quote, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that's what he's looking for. So the first quality he looked for was caring. The second, I would suggest, we don't have to deduce. The second was faithfulness. Now, we did have to deduce his reasons for picking Hanani, but we know his reasons for picking Hanani because he made it very, very plain. Look at verse number two. He said, I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. There it is. There's his reasons. He was a faithful man and he feared God more than many. So faithfulness, faithfulness was one of the things he was looking for in other leaders. A minute ago I asked, could there be any greater quality for a leader than caring, but then we come to this one and we might ask the same question, because this was just as good. Could there be any greater quality in a leader than faithfulness? Bob Young Sr. used to say the greatest ability is dependability. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. So to understand how important that quality is, just think about how disgusted we get when it's missing. Think about how disgusted we get when we elect somebody to political office who then turns around and does something exactly the opposite of what they said they were going to do. We even have people go into political office who completely change parties 
after they've been voted into office by a whole group of people, they say, oh, never mind, and they go to the other side. I've never understood that kind of thing. And we're disgusted with that. Think about how disgusted we get when pastors or church leaders are not faithful, or when husbands or fathers are not faithful. Faithfulness is vital. I looked up that phrase, faithful men, in my concordance. You know, I found it only occurs three times in the King James Bible, that exact phrase, faithful men. It occurs here. It also occurs in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 20 that says, a faithful man shall abound with blessings. And it occurs in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 6, which says, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. And so based on those, those verses, we learn that to be a faithful man is, is a good thing. It's to abound with blessings, but we also learn it's a rare thing. A faithful man who And so here's Nehemiah looking for leadership. And he looks for concern. And he looks for faithfulness. And the last thing he looks for, I just, I've been meditating on this phrase. I think this is a great phrase. Verse number two, he said, Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, was a faithful man, and he feared God more than men. Think about that one. Well, that's a, that's a great phrase. He feared God more than men. I wouldn't mind that as an epitaph on my tombstone. Here lies Bill Johnson. He feared God more than men. Think about that, what that says. That's good stuff. Some other translations describe Hananiah this way. They say, he was a faithful and God-fearing, he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. That's how the English Standard Version renders that. The NIV says he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. What a quality of leadership. As a matter of fact, of the three now that we've looked at, I think, that might be the greatest one. Imagine if we had a president who feared God more than men. Imagine if the pulpits across our land were filled with men who feared God more than men. Imagine if fathers in homes across America feared God more than men. Just think about it. I mean, how far do you want to go with it? Every place you want to go. Imagine if your boss, who you work for, feared God more than men. It would be a wonderful, wonderful transform the world. And so he looked for that particular quality in leaders. And so the first thing Nehemiah did, the first thing he said, uh, I want you to remember while I'm gone, is he, he, he said, I, I want to appoint leaders. And here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for concern. I'm looking for faithfulness. I'm looking for fearing God more than the average job. That's the first word, leadership. second word is guardianship. And I, I see that in verses 3 and 4. Look there with me. Verses 3 and 4. I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Guardianship. I was sitting this morning reviewing my notes. I was sitting in my easy chair very early this morning. I was in my bathroom. And all of a sudden, I had my laptop on my lap, and all of a sudden, a Skype call came in. I don't know if you know what Skype is or not. It's a video calling thing that works over your PC. And it was Nick from Afghanistan. I told him I wanted to test this out for our Tuesday night Bible study, because we want to include him in our Bible study this way. And so here I am, sitting there in my bathrobe, hair all over the place, because I just got up. And Nick, all of a sudden, there's this picture on the screen, and I'm thinking to myself, as he gets this goofy grin on his face, he can see exactly what I look like, just like the peace course all night. But nonetheless, here I am talking to Nick, and 
you know, I'm sharing with him a little bit this morning, 7,000 miles away. I thought, what amazing technology this is. But then he also told me some things. He told me how much he misses his family and friends. And, and uh, you know, I talked to him a little bit, told him we're praying for him. But as I sat there, I'm think, I was thinking about this very thing, guardianship. And I was thinking, don't you thank God that there are people who are standing on the wall like me. We have some other folks that have been attending with us sometimes. Dave and Sherry Walter say, uh, recently they have a son that's in Afghanistan as well. And so thank the Lord for those who are willing to stand on the walls and protect America. Well, Nehemiah here didn't just walk away and appoint leaders. He gave them some instruction. And I would suggest to you that the guidelines he gave them were, were largely related to that topic. Guardianship. Setting watch. The walls and gates were in place, providing as much security as walls and gates can provide. They were brand new. They had just been built. The walls and doors had just been hung. Everything was shiny and, and, and beautiful. But now, somebody needed to guard them. And that was the instruction he gave. I like the way Warren Wiersbe puts it in his book. He has a great book on Nehemiah called Be Determined. And I'll quote from it a few times today. But uh, he said this. He said, what good are strong new gates if nobody is guarding them and controlling who enters the city? What good are walls if the gates are open to every foe who wants to enter the city? He says, I understand that the Great Wall of China was penetrated by the enemy at least four times, and each time the guards were bribed. Gates and walls are only as good as the people who guard them. And I think that's what he was saying to Hananiah and Hananiah. Gates and walls are only as good as the people who guard them. Now, again, we could apply this, could we not, to all the areas of leadership in our life today? Could we not apply this to, uh, to the leadership of our nation? All we got to do is go back to the very founding fathers and remember a famous quote by Ben Franklin, and you see exactly how this applies. Ben Franklin supposedly, and I, I think this is true, but you wonder how much of this kind of stuff has been changed down through the years, but I believe this is true. Ben Franklin was leaving Independence Hall on the final day of the Constitutional Convention in 1787 when someone asked him, Doctor, do we have a monarchy or do we have a republic? Do you remember what his response was? His response was, you have a republic if you can keep it. And boy, I'll tell you what, we look at our news today and do we not see the reality, the prophecy sometimes of that. We need to stand guard. That's what he was saying. If we're going to keep that which we have. We could apply it to pastors and churches, couldn't we? So much of the New Testament instruction to pastors concerns guardianship, standing guard. First Timothy, the whole book of First Timothy seems to be about that. Paul said to Timothy in chapter 6 and verse 20, he said, Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. That's King James. If you look in the New American Standard, it translates it, guard what has been entrusted to you. We need to guard it. We could apply it to leadership in our homes, couldn't we? How much, of, how much of the troubles that we have at homes today can be traced to the fact, at least in part, to the fact that parents throw open the gates and allow every kind of enemy to waltz right in. Enemy that wants to destroy the souls of their children. There's a scene in The Lord of the Rings. I'm a great Tolkien fan. I like J.R.R. Tolkien. There's a great scene in the, in the Lord of the Rings, the movie version. I don't remember how it's put in the book, but in the movie version... Men are all holed up in this great fortress, this great citadel, and they believe themselves impervious to attack. And the hordes, their enemies are all around. And the men are basically cocky. No one can get to us. But there's a little tiny drain at the foot of the wall that the enemy manages to gain access through and just pours into the city. Foolishly left unguarded, through which the enemy gained attack. Again, let me quote from Wiersbe. 
he sums it up like this. He says, all of this has a message for us today. If God's people don't protect what they have accomplished for the Lord, the enemy will come in and take it over. Paul's admonition must be heeded. In Ephesians 6.13, Paul said, having done all, stand. What a tragedy that schools that once were true to the faith are today denying the faith. And churches that once preached the gospel now have in their pulpits ministers who preach another gospel. Every Christian ministry is one short generation away from destruction and God's people must be on guard. Boy, that's a good statement. Think about that. Every Christian ministry is one short generation away from destruction and God's people must be on guard. He goes on. He says, we need guards at the gates. Faithful men and women who will not allow false Christians to get in and take over the ministry. We need watchers on the walls to warn us when the enemy is approaching. Christian parents need to guard their home lest the enemy gets in and captures their children. It is while God's servants are asleep and overconfident that the enemy comes in and plants his counterfeits. So we must be awake and alert. In this day when pluralism is interpreted by most people to mean agree with everybody about everything and don't make waves, Christians need to remember that they are different and must test everything by the word of God. There are many religions, but there is still none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Anything that changes that message or weakens our motivation to get that message out is that the devil and must be opposed. We need guards at the gates and watchers on the wall or the enemy will take over. End quote. And so leadership was one of the things that he was concerned about as he was preparing to leave. Guardianship was another. And the third and final, membership. Membership. Jump down into the middle of his long list of names to verse number 61. Verse number 61. These were the ones who came up from Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Sherab, Adon, and Emmer, but they could not identify their father's house, nor their lineage, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. And of the priests, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, who was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore they were excluded for the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with Urim and Thummim membership. The vast majority of chapter 7 consists of this genealogical record, which we did not read. As you can see, I struggled to pronounce some of the names right there in that short section. Nehemiah didn't write this genealogy. He simply grabbed it from someplace else. He says that back in verse number 5. He doesn't claim that he wrote it. He says, My God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who come up to the, in the first return and found written in it. And then he includes it here. It actually is the same list which is found back in the previous book in your Bible in Ezra, chapter 2. Chapter 2. I am grateful this morning to Brother Jeff. Because a couple of weeks ago we were talking about this very thing. And I, we had just finished chapter 6. And I told you, you know, we're coming up on chapter 7. If you look at chapter 7, Jeff, there's 5,000 names in there. Uh, you know, I'm never going to get anybody to read the scripture today or before this. I think I'll just skip that chapter. I'm serious. And Jeff looked at me with this hangdog look on his face. And he said, please don't do that. And he reminded me that every name in the Bible is important. Every person, every word. 
I say that all the time, don't I? But Brother Jeff had to be iron sharpening iron that day because for a minute there I had forgotten that. Every word is important in the Bible. And as I prepared for this sermon, I could not help but grow more and more convinced. I, you know, when I prepare a sermon, I have to read the chapter over and over and over. Imagine reading this list of days over and over in multiple versions, which I do, over and over. And as I read all those names, I could not help but be convinced of the fact that that long list is that long list which included all types of people if you read down through there you'll see it included priests it included Levites it included singers it included gatekeepers it included this group that's called the Nephilim it included a group that is referred to as the descendants of the servants of Solomon it, it, it's, a, it's a list that includes all kinds of people but I think here's what it's saying to us all of these people are important I like the first four words of verse number six these are the people. I always use that for my title. These are the people. Because that's what it's talking about. That very thought. Now, of course, the book of Nehemiah has all kinds of historical significance. There's no doubt about that. The building of the wall is a historical marvel. There's no doubt. And in years future, Jesus Christ and his disciples were going to walk on these very streets, which is made possible by the fact that Nehemiah had gone back and these people had rebuilt those walls and hung those gates and restored that city. But here in chapter 7, I think we're reminded that the story is not just really about the wall. It's about the people who built the wall. And the people for whom the wall was being built. We're reminded that people are important. You know, there are a lot of lists like this in our Bible. There's one in Hebrews chapter 11. Flip over there with me for a minute. Hebrews chapter 11. There at the other end of your Bible. And let's just notice another list. We see them everywhere in Scripture. Lists of names. Hebrews chapter 11. We oftentimes call this chapter the roll call of the heroes of faith because it's all about people who, by faith, and we see that phrase all throughout it, by faith accomplished things for God. Let's just read a little bit of it. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. Verse 7, by faith Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen moved with godly fear prepared an ark. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed. And we could go on. The whole chapter is a list of names. And as I thought about this list in chapter 7, and all these other lists, I, I could not help that all of these lists, in addition to other things that they might say, say this to us. They're referring to us, uh, they're talking to us about people, people whose faith and courage made things happen. People count. People count. Why do you suppose God put it into Nehemiah's heart in verse number 5? He said, there, God told me to do this. God put it in my heart to look, make this list. Why did he put it in Nehemiah's heart to do that? Perhaps to remind Nehemiah. It's about people. All this that you've done, Nehemiah, all this great work that you've done, look at this wonderful wall and these gates and all that. That's not the most important thing. It's the people that count. Rearsby said it like this. The important thing is not to count the people, but to realize that people count. You know, we're, we're supposed to be doing some construction around here. The guy was supposed to be here this week. I don't know where he's at. 
You can pray about that. But nonetheless, we're supposed to be doing some construction around here. You know why? It's because we believe this building is, is God's building. We, we believe it's important that we keep this building nice. We believe that it's important that we're stewards of that and that we, to the very best of our ability, keep it in a way that would glorify and honor God. But the building is not the important thing. The building is here just for the people. The people that are reached by it. We were never commissioned to go and build buildings. That's not what Jesus commissioned us to do. We were commissioned to go and reach people. We're not builders of walls. We're builders of people. Well, we need to remember that. We need to remember that. And as Brother Jeff reminded me, chapter 7 is a wonderful reminder that people count. People are important. But you know, as I read this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, I also determined that there's some other things in here that are lessons from this long list of people. Not only does it tell us that people are important and that people count, it also tells us, does it not, that God is keeping accounts. Does it not tell us that? You know, this register was important. It listed a whole group of people that told whether or not they were, they were members of the, of the family, if you will, of, of Israel. That's all important. But does it not also foreshadow and illustrate a register that's infinitely more important? The list that God is keeping. Does it not foreshadow that? You know, God is keeping accounts of all who are part of the family of God, of all who are members. He is keeping account of his, an account of his servants. He knows where we came from. He knows what family we belong to. He knows how much we gave. He knows how much we did. And one day, all of his children are going to have to stand and give an account of how we served. I don't want to go too far afield on this, because the fact is this could make up an entire message. But it's true, is it not? He is keeping accounts. And someday, we must give account. We must give an account. And that thought leads to the final thought that comes from this list. And that is this. If you're not on the list, you don't count. If you're not on the list, you don't count. And you probably wonder, why in the world did I pick the few verses that I picked? If I'm going to read a list of names, if I'm going to grab any of the names out of here, why did I pick the ones I picked? I picked the ones that I picked in verses 61 and following because they demonstrate this particular part. If you're not on the list, you don't count. Here was a group of people in this long list, this one little tiny group of people who they couldn't prove that their membership was valid. They couldn't trace their genealogy back to Aaron, which they would have to be able to do if they were going to be allowed to serve in the priesthood. Therefore, they were excluded. They were not on the list. Now let me try and apply this. Make this somewhat clear. The Bible speaks of the fact that all of us must stand before God and give an account. It speaks of judgments. Let me mention two judgments. In one place there's a judgment called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. Paul speaks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Pretty clear. Can we, can we find any exceptions in there? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. He said it also in Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now I believe that judgment is for Christians, and the reason I believe that is because of the fact he used the word we, and the fact that who his audience was, in both of those cases, Paul was writing to Christians there. And he was saying that Christians must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I believe the Bible teaches that the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment for our works and our levels of service to the king. I don't understand everything about it. I confess, I don't. 
But I do believe that the Bible teaches it has nothing to do with salvation. Nobody's going to walk away from the judgment seat of Christ and go to hell. Because that judgment was already taken care of at the cross. My sins were judged at the cross. I, must, I will never have to stand before God and give an account for my sins. They were nailed to the tree. They were moved as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't remember them anymore. My Bible says now there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. There is no further judgment for my sins. So this is a judgment for works. This is a judgment for how I have served. This is a judgment for the saved. And it seems to be about rewards. It seems to be where he is going to give rewards based on our level of service. That's an interesting concept, which I don't totally understand. But it's there. It's in the Bible. I've heard some preachers say that because of that, there's no need to be concerned about the judgment seat of Christ. It's only going to be happy. It's only going to be good things. It's only going to be warm and fuzzy stuff. It's going to be Jesus saying, well done. Maybe, I suppose. But then I, I struggle with, with one phrase that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 11. Right after he said we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, in the very next verse he said, knowing therefore, therefores are important in the Bible, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So I understand all there is about it, but there seems to be a warning there as well. Does there not? About the judgment seat of Christ. And so here's some observations that I, I tend to make in my own mind about the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, number one, I'm saved, so I will take part in it. I mean, everybody who's born again is going to be there. We're not going to get out of it. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And number two, there are apparently rewards to be doled out based on service. Now, I guess I'm just selfish, but I'd like some. If there are some, wouldn't you like some? And so, if they're there, I'd like to work hard enough to earn some. And the third observation I would make is while the promise of rewards is positive motivation, if there is any warning of God's displeasure, that's negative motivation, which I don't want that. And so both of those things motivate me to want to serve more. And so there's that judgment, that list. But that's not the only judgment that's mentioned in the Bible. There's another one, a far worse one. And you need to see this one. It's in Revelation chapter 20. Turn to the very last book in your Bible. Revelation chapter 20. Coming down to the very end of it. Just a couple chapters from the end. Revelation chapter 20. And look in verse number 11. And we see one here called the great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. I saw a great white throne. And he who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, or hell, delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. While the judgment seat of Christ is for believers, I think the Bible clearly states that the great white throne judgment is just the opposite. It's for the lost, referred to there as the dead. Believers are already with the Lord in heaven if you look at the history of Revelation and follow it through. All who stand at the judgment at the great white throne judgment are lost, and there is only one verdict for them. They leave the judgment seat of or the great white throne judgment and go straight to hell. It's funny what you can glean from a list of names, isn't it? I think this list in Nehemiah at least foreshadows, at least reminds us that there is a list of the saved. 
There is a list of the eligible. There is a list of the membership, if you will, who are going to be allowed into heaven. There's a list of the family of God. And to be on that list is to be privileged, it's to belong, it's to be secure, it's to have a future to ever, forever. But to not be on that list is all the opposites. No future. Lost. Alone. Undone. Destined for hell. And so obviously this morning, I must ask the question, are you on the list? Are you on the list? Let me quote from Wearsby one more time. He said, we must all be sure that we know we're in the family of God. No matter how much they argued or protested, the priests, without legitimate genealogies, could not enter the temple and minister at the altar. God is not impressed with our first birth. What he wants is that we experience a second birth and become his children. Are you on the list? The songwriter said, Lord, I care not for riches, neither silver nor gold. I, I would make sure of heaven. I would enter the fold. In the book of thy kingdom with its pages so fair, tell me, Jesus, my Savior, is my name written there? Is my name written there? On the page, white and fair, in the book of thy kingdom is my name written there. We're not talking about membership in the church. That's an important thing and a good thing, a whole different topic. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God's list, the book of life, membership in heaven. Is your name on that the Bible says the only way to have your name on that list is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The Bible says the only way to be on that list is to receive him. As, Jesus, as, as it says in John chapter 1 verse number 12, as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Is your name on the list? Well, me and I was going away. And I don't know, it may be that those this could have actually been three sermons. I don't know. It could be that each of those is a separate topic. I'm not sure. But he seemed to be concerned about these three different things as he was preparing to leave leadership, guardianship, and membership. And so as we close and right before we pray, I would ask you this morning to consider. Examine your life. Examine your heart. I'll do the same. In all three of those areas. In our roles as leaders. And all of us are leaders in some way. In our roles as leaders, whether that's in the church, whether that's in home, in our home, whether that's you know in, in, in the business world, wherever. Do we have those characteristics of leadership that seem so important here? Do we care? Are we faithful? And most of all, do we fear God more than those who are in the world? Number two, are we guarding what we've been entrusted with? We think of that word guardianship. Are we guarding? Or are the gates open? So many people in America today, the gates are wide open and everything in the world is flooding into their life. Are we guarding what we have been entrusted with? And finally, and most importantly, we need to examine our lives whether or not we're on the list. And if you're not, if you're not on that list, if you look at your life and you say, you know, I'm not sure, I don't know, do you know that you can know that today? Absolutely 100%. You don't have to hope. You don't have to wonder. You can know 100% that your name is written there. You know that song I quoted a minute ago? The very last verse says, Yes, my name is written there. And I can echo that because I know it. You can absolutely know. And we would love to show you from the Bible. We're going to sing. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. We're going to sing uh, just a couple verses of a song of invitation. And uh, if you need to know that, would you do this? Would you just step out? It's not about embarrassing you. It's about helping you. Step out. Let us take the Bible and show you how you can know that. We don't want anybody to go out of here today without their name on the